fighter jet just flew over. I forgot it's RMC Convocation Day. One of the hazards of recording a podcast in a military community is sometimes there are planes flying over your house. This fighter jet is literally flying over my house right now. Don't you know I'm recording a podcast episode? Just before my guest logged on for our call, a fighter jet flew over my house on its way to buzz the new graduates of the Royal Military College of Canada. Fortunately, my guest and I were not interrupted during our call. So without further ado, let's get this episode started. Hello, I'm Anna Soper. I'm a librarian in Kingston, Ontario, Canada, and this is Teen People, the podcast where I track down people who are in Teen People magazine and ask them questions. Since I am a librarian, you might not be surprised to hear that I have a collection of Teen Peoples left over from a subscription I had in the late 90s and early 2000s. Teen People featured real teens in every issue and saw their contributors as influencers. They printed their full names, ages, and locations. And that makes this podcast possible, since I use my library science skills to scout my guests online. In a previous episode, I interviewed Amar Shaw, who was a member of Teen People's news team in the late 90s. The Teen People news team was a core of young journalists from across America who contributed to Teen People's human interest reporting from their own communities. Amar connected me with my last guest, Alicia Fernandez-Miranda, and my guest in this episode, Nadia Ahmed. Nadia completed her law degree at the University of Florida, where she served as executive editor of the Florida Journal of International Law and wrote about women's property rights in post-partition South Asia. Today, Nadia is an associate professor of law at Barry University in Florida. Like Amar, Nadia contributed to a 1999 Teen People article called Take the Money and Run, where Teen People sent four of their news team members out to the mall with $100 each to spend on cosmetics. Amar bought guy stuff like gel and Old Spice. Another news team member, Megan, bought lipsticks and a Sally Hansen French manicure kit. One of the news team members, called Carrie, chose some body shop hemp lip balm, as well as a Victoria's Secret vanilla lace gift kit and a whack of other stuff too. Teen people describe Nadia as a savvy shopper. She spent much less than the other girls, but she indulged herself, heading to the body shop Lancome and Kiehl's. In the photos, Nadia looks like she could have skipped out of a Gap ad from that era. She was wearing white canvas sneakers, gray trousers, a denim button-down shirt over a pale top, and a light gray hijab. The body shop consultant was photographed with Nadia, standing in front of a display of those candy-colored soaps, three for five. The consultant was wearing Doc Martin Mary Janes with white socks, beige khakis, and an oversized button-down shirt. This was back when you could have a retail job and not have to wear leggings and a walkie-talkie. You'll hear about Nadia's shopping trip in this episode, and of course, what she's up to now, 25 years later.
I'm interested to hear more about your work in environmental law, but I'm going to start by taking us back to the late 90s, because um, I have this issue of teen people with Lauren Hill on the cover. And this is the April 1999 issue of Teen People. And you were in a story um, where you were asked, you were given a $100 stipend and asked to go and, and buy skincare and beauty products and share the experience with Teen People readers as a member of Teen People's news team. And I talked with Amar Shah, your friend who was also in this story, um, and spoke with me about his awkwardness of being a man and, and going into these spaces that were um more feminine um and um feeling awkward about buying beauty and skincare products as a man um i was curious what inspired you to join teen people's news team and how was this experience of going to buy skincare products for teen people sure and i'll back up a little bit so the idea i i didn't know even teen people existed because uh, amar and i were part of the first like inaugural cohort of the teen people advisory board so we both had joined um the orlando sentinels rave section was was which was the youth section the youth section was really a, a, an amazing um, um section in the sense that it provided a way for youth in our community especially teenagers to be able to to really have their name in print in the, in the major metropolitan uh, newspaper i remember growing up and hearing the sound of the newspaper hit the driveway and being really excited uh, about that which is a really weird concept maybe now and uh and and so i was i really gravitated to, to journalism. I had, you know, I'd started out first writing movie reviews and music reviews for uh, for uh, for this fledgling rave section. I would call in on the telephone, um, hard, hard dial telephone, and I'd prepare my paragraph movie review in advance, like, and I basically read it. Uh, to on the phone call and then they would they would publish it was really exciting for me when I was in eighth grade to see that uh, happening and then I was invited to to be a part of the uh, rave section when it first happened and that's that was where I met uh, Amar first and Amar uh, was from uh, had gone to school at a Dr. Phillips area and so uh, it was also good for me to see another South Asian uh, person as a part of this like early cohort of uh, of the rave section. And so our editors there were, were really phenomenal. And the the last editor that, that I had when I had um had uh, when I was about to graduate from high school had recommended to to both of us to apply to to this teen people advisory board. I had worked also um, as a news intern for WFTV Channel 9, which was the ABC affiliate in Orlando. I'd also um, earlier worked um, with uh, my aunt, uh, who was also my Sunday school teacher on a radio program. So I had experience with both print, uh, TV, and, and, and radio. And so I was really excited to be able to also uh, write uh, in the magazine space. That was really exciting. Uh, for me. And so, you know, I submitted the application uh, for that. And it, it was exciting to be selected. It, it was it was it was really a way that I could write at, at a national level. And that was really exciting for me. And then 
when I had to write the pitch for this, uh, for, for the shopping spree for, for makeup, I was also really excited about it. And I had, um, I, I put a lot of effort into that because, um, I felt I wasn't cool enough to be writing about makeup, um, in the sense that I, I, I wasn't somebody who really liked makeup that much, but I felt like there was this idea of having like the natural look, uh, for makeup, that was also really beneficial. Uh, and also when I was a teenager, I'd really struggled with acne. And so I had kind of also used it to kind of camouflage the, the the pimples as well. I also wanted to stay a little bit under budget. So the, I was given about $100, but I ended up spending a little under that. Like under, I spent about $81.50. Yeah, that's um, what I, it says here, $81.50. You were very economical because the other two girls spent $99 and $99.50 respectively. And then Amara spent $88. So you were actually the cheapest of all of the, the four news team members. <laughs> so I was also trying to calculate in my, commute as as well so i had to take the bart the the, the train over from berkeley to go to san francisco to go shopping and Aww. uh and it, so i wanted to kind of i, I didn't like include that within the shopping list but i wanted to kind of budget that in uh, as well like the cost of travel um because i think we kind of also lose lose track of the supply chain uh, issues as well in terms of, you know, what it takes to get uh, good to market, but also what it takes to get the consumer um, uh, to the market. And I think now, like we're thinking about everybody shopping on Amazon or different uh, on online retailers or having like one-stop shopping. And so we kind of lose the, the perspective and how that's also like a, a cost also factor, factor in. Mm -hmm. That's really fascinating insight because the consumer um, uh, and retail marketplace has changed so much since 1999. Yeah, yeah, I think that it, it's 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 really different because those costs are also absorbed by the by the customer, and so yes. so I think some of those travel costs are also. Uh, um, and also this idea of spending $100 on cosmetics was also mm -hmm. like kind of beyond mm -hmm. me, me me as well. So even that, so I ended up going to like a more, I ended up going to the Mission District out by Union Square. And so when I went shopping uh, out there, I think I had, I don't think I'd gone to like a, a Bloomingdale's type store because that's where Kiehl's uh, was located. And so they had really um, natural products. And so I was really focusing on, on including um, that as a part of that. So that's where I spent probably most of the the money. And then I ended up getting a, a foundation from the Lancome store, which is maybe in the Macy's. In the April 1999 issue of Teen People, Nadia said that she went to Macy's, where she knew the Lancome counter was waiting with the face powder she wanted. I selected the powder within about 90 seconds, she wrote. That was how simple it was. But for the sake of the article, she asked the sales clerk, what makes the poudre majeure so great? Nadia wrote, The Lancome beauty consultant rambled off something about how these micro-bubbles are supposed to pop when I put the powder on my skin. Her explanation actually frightened me. Did I really want tiny bombs exploding on my face? Then I said, I think I wrote that, um, did I really want tiny bombs exploding on my face? And, and this is like in 1998 uh, that I, I went shopping and ended up getting published later on. But the the tiny bombs like saying that you know as a muslim woman like wearing hijab was a little bit funny uh, uh to me that there's this idea kind of the stereotype of, of the muslim as a terrorist so for me to be able to kind of insert that sentence in as, as a joke was um i was just trying to be funny but maybe it wasn't that funny 
I read that now in 2023 as rather subversive. Absolutely. I totally get that. Yeah, I think that's that's really interesting. There's a really interesting sort of visual metaphor that perhaps the sales clerk was not uh, anticipating would land the way it landed with you. Yeah, and I think so. And I think that was also the idea. There's other idea I felt like when I'm going into the mall or even into a bank or some type of like service area where I'm supposed to be provided service, I feel that people were nicer to me and have better interactions with because they're trying to sell me a product than in my normal everyday interactions, whether it was as a student or even like in the newsroom, like I really felt like a, a level of discrimination that I didn't. And so I think there, and, and I've joked to some people about this, uh, is that, you know, you'll find more Muslim women in the malls than you will in the mosque. And, and I think that's interesting because there it's, it's a little bit more user friendly in terms of the bathroom uh, spaces and being able to take children and go there um, and, and just being able to be catered to versus versus being in, in a space where you're, you're kind of talked to versus and not being able to really engage in the conversation. Mm -hmm. Yes, I could see that these spaces, you know, as I mentioned with Amar, with his discomfort being a guy, like these these retail spaces are slash were built for women. Yeah, and I, I think that's definitely true. I think like if I was Amara going to these places, I would have a very different uh, experience uh, th than I did. And I think that where you feel like comfortable, where you grab a sense of belonging is is that. And I, so for me, I think that was, you know, I felt more, uh, you know, comfortable doing that. And the city I had grown up in Florida, Altamont Springs, uh, was really only known for its mall. Um, and I, I had also, when I was a senior in high school, I had worked at the 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 mall there and I worked at a store called Gafers which was based out of Louisiana and then it ended up being uh, absorbed and and um and, and bought out by Dillard's and so that was interesting because that was actually the first like merger I experienced and so the person who hired me as this retail associate uh, the manager she actually lost the job as a part of the corporate takeover whereas I I kept my job and I was able to even get a little bit of a raise. Um, and so that will kind of showed me as well, like kind of how these corporate uh, interactions are, are also happening as well. Hmm, that's fascinating. Um, I think, you know, you mentioned at the beginning that you had just started wearing a hijab at this point and that you, you felt uh, perhaps it was a bit redundant or you felt a bit awkward about going to, to buy beauty products. Um, as a hijabi woman and these other two girls in the the feature they're buying things like body glitter and mascara and you were more focused on skincare and i think actually that's a little bit ahead of the curve because when you think back to the late 90s i think makeup and perfume were probably the benchmarks of the beauty industry but now skincare in the 2020s has has become huge and people are investing so much more money in skincare than they ever did and as someone myself who probably buys more skincare products than makeup products and and very rarely wears makeup um I, I think, you know, I, I feel a little bit of a kinship in that, you know, you were buying skincare rather than stuff like mascara and body glitter and gel, you know? 
<laughs> yeah. And I think that's interesting because actually makeup is not helpful to your skin. Like it's important to also have like skincare um, in the sense of having um, like sunscreen. Um, and also another uh, thing was, is that I also tended to have at that time, like really oily skin. So I'd also gotten some like blotting tissues uh, as well. Um, and so for me, that was a like a type of luxury item to, to be able to just like to, um, and I noticed that also when I had worked um, in TV news, um, that the that the reporters didn't want to have that shine on on their face w w when they were going live, and so I just became a little bit more um, self conscious of that, just because they were. So I I didn't want to be like the intern with a shiny shiny face, um, and and so that was just something that's kind of just stuck uh, stuck with me. And then I also wanted to go back to to the other question about the hijab because uh, what's interesting is that I. Be time by the be, between the time I pitched the product, the the idea to have this um have this article as a part of the the team people um spread, uh, I started to wear hijab. And the reason um that I started to wear hijab is because between then my grandmother had passed away. Um, and that was actually the first um like loss that I had experienced. Uh, and it was really hard uh, for me because I had grown up um with with my grandmother she had she had lived with us I, I, since i was about three years old um and so so that was really hard it was like really losing like a, a part of me like even um you know just losing like a, an, another mom because it wasn't just like a grandmother you go visit but like she, she lived with us she was there when we came home from school and um and one thing i really noticed about her is like she she wore the, she wore the hijab and i felt like to kind of honor her and to just kind of keep her memory alive that was important for me to wear to wear the headscarf, um, and so then, um, and so then I, I had forgotten that I sent the story idea. I got selected to be a part of this um, of this um, idea, and so it wasn't just you go and shop and you write about it. You also have a life photographer come to your college campus, uh, shadow you while you go shopping, and also take pictures of you uh, in in your apartment uh, as well. And so that was really. Um, I was like, oh, I don't know. This is like the whole kind of defeats the whole purpose of being of wearing hijab when you're supposed to be all, all, all modest. And, um, but for me, hijab wasn't really like a religious symbol as much as it was like this political symbol also, um, because it was a way to keep alive my uh, like my grandmother, but also as a way to, of thinking about um, what one of my uh, my undergraduates um, thesis advisor at the time, she said it's this it's this contra-modern form of feminism um, and thinking about hijab as, as not something that's backwards or something barbaric, but it's really just a different way for women to express their femininity um, and that they're really trying to take uh, to take control of their bodies and express their religion in, in a certain way and to say that they're going to be pushing back against this anti-immigration uh, feeling as well as the xenophobia. Um, and at the same time, the way that people wear the hijab um, in the West is different than that they wear it in, in the East. And so you're going to see different experiences with the hijab. So there's um, a push away from wearing hijab in the West, whereas in, in the East, there's more of a forcing of, of the hijab. Like you'll see this in places like Afghanistan uh, and Iran, that so much so that the women have to completely cover. Uh, and then even Afghanistan, they're not even allowed to you know, to really go out. Um, they've been banned for, from schools. And so this is really like like a point of contestion. 
And so this is something that has been going on for thousands of years for women that, you know, that we're having our rights um, where we can be present, be restricted. And I think that has been uh, super uh, problematic. And it's I think it's hurtful, like it hurts the society. And so for many women, they have to make a choice between whether they want to go to school, whether they want to work in a government office, or whether they want to practice their faith the way that they want to. For many women, that is not really a choice uh, for them in the sense that they feel that they're just being excluded. And so from this idea of integration, it's not as if we integrate on the terms that you want us to integrate, like that assimilation has to also be a, a two-way street. Like if it's just like unilateral, I think it, it it's really uh, uh, problematic. And it's also this idea of, of keeping a, a, um, an idea of Christian nationalism uh, alive in the sense that it's it's called um, and meant to be intended for a secularization of the state, but it's really uh, the 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 ricochet effect is it really leads to more Christian nationalism um, because it's easier for someone to see the the headscarf as as a threat to the state, and and that's really I think my entry into it is that this. That, that wearing the headscarf, I'm constantly perceived as a threat um, and constantly have to disarm as a result of that. Um, and at some point, I just get exhausted, exhausted, especially especially in like the deep south in the Bible Belt of Florida. Mm. How did it feel when this magazine issue came out to see yourself wearing a hijab? So it was really funny for my roommate at the time. Like she thought like I was like trying to be this like super... Uh, like, you know, pious, like Muslim woman. And then she's like, because she was even there when I was getting the, having the photo shoot in, in my apartment. She was like laughing the whole way through because I think I had to like lean on the side of the the futon that I had to take the picture with, with the lipstick. Um, it's also kind of like a really suggestive <laughs> posture also if you're thinking about it. Um, and so this was like very hilarious uh, to her. And it was something I felt like I couldn't live this down. And so I saw it as kind of exciting, but then I just kind of closed it and then I don't want to see it again. Uh, but then it wasn't like it was just like in my it just ended up in my uh, apartment. It had like all over newsstands. And so I would like I would go on the weekends to um, to these is Islamic classes. And so I had a, a woman who was a, an Afghan uh, immigrant uh, come up to me also. She's like, are you in the and I would be like, yes, <laughs> like I just like. <laughs> And I was just like, I wanted to act like it didn't happen. I was like, oh, it happened a while ago. <laughs> it was like maybe a few months ago. Because uh, then like, I know people would definitely look down uh, on it. But now, like, if you think about it, um, and, and not, I think it was, at a, it was at a national conference in Chicago. And one of my friends from when I was in middle school came up to me and hugged me. And she's like, I saw you. I was like, so I was like, no, that was like super embarrassing. Um, and I don't I don't think that I, I just didn't know what to do about that. Um, but now, like, if you look at it, there's this whole industry also growing for uh, for Muslim women um, in, in fashion, as well as for um as for like the idea of, of hijab. And so I think in, in some respect, teen people was also kind of um, like showing, like like being inclusive in that sense by by including me, even if I felt uncomfortable um, doing the, the photo shoot. I was pretty happy doing the shopping, but the photo shoot was very, um, parts of it were like kind of uncomfortable uh, uh, for me. But I think that now, um, like I, I think that I think it's it, it, it's okay. Um, and even if I show it to my kids now, they don't think it's that that cool because now it's very like pervasive. 
That's true. Yes. The, the image culture, the culture of self-image is very different now than it was in the late nineties as well. And I've had guests who've spoken with me about the novelty of seeing yourself in a magazine, the novelty of being photographed by a professional photographer. And now we can take these selfies and videos of ourselves that look enormously slick and edited and you know, beautifully well lit with just our phones. So that I think, I think today's young people are clearly growing up in a very different context than we did. Yeah. And I think even the whole medium of photography is very different. When I had taken a class, um, like a dark room photography class where they have to put up the red lights and, and, um, and, and have, think about your exposures, but even thinking about, you know, lighting and aperture, because you can all change that now on your phone. You, you can, you know, change all of that. And so I think looking at the science of, of that also was, um, um, and like the art of how photography has happened has changed very, very dramatically. Totally. Yeah. And, and even now magazines are not what they were either. So there's that shift as well. Yeah. I think they've definitely kind of expanded in, in, in different ways. Mm. So I did take a look at the inflation calculator because I wanted to see what a hundred us dollars in 1998 would be now. And it's 182. That's a lot of money they gave you. Yeah, it, it was. It was seemed. It seemed like a lot of money. That's why I couldn't even spend it, spend it all because it just seemed like way too much money for an eighteen year old to spend on, on makeup. Like even you know, it's basically giving you all this money to buy you know cosmetics, and you don't even have the idea how to spend it all. Even if I'm going someplace where I will be like, I'm not just gonna go even to the to a to a local um like drugstore to buy because I felt if I did that I wouldn't be able to buy something and I also don't want to go buy stuff I'm not going 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 to use also. Yeah. It's it's interesting that the other two girls did not have a problem spending the $100, but I think if you're going to be really cynical about this feature is that teen people probably regarded it as a sort of a branding exercise of, hey, if we have these young influencers showing our readers, you know, the latest in Maybelline and the latest in Kiehl's, then, you know, it's going to generate more revenue for our advertisers. Yeah, I, I definitely think like in, in in media, the idea of advertising is really at, at the forefront. But I just I just couldn't wrap my head, head around the idea of spending that much money on it, even if it was just given to me and I, and I you know, and I don't have like any accountability on how it's going to be spent. I just could, I just couldn't like get to that that number mm-hmm. uh, of 100 and um, and then figuring out, like, you know, like, what am I going to do with it? Like, I just wasn't going to go buy like a, a rack of lipsticks and then not even, not, not even, not even use that. Uh, whereas now I think like if I, I I could do that because then I have my two daughters that definitely love uh, lipstick and they have no problem probably buying like 10 different types of, uh, of lipstick. And I think uh, like there, there are, you know, children's lipsticks where they'll come in like all these like glitter co- colors. There'll be like 20 um, colors of nail polish. And so I think that's really, um, I, I think that now it wouldn't be a problem. Like I could easily spend $200, I think if I needed to, to on that. Um, but, but I think at that time I just was really, I couldn't wrap my head around it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The perspective of a young student as well. It definitely changes that context of like, oh, this could be grocery money. Yeah. 
or transit money. <laughs> yeah, because when I also had written for the Daily Californian, and so the money I made doing that, and that was maybe only I actually got paid less in college for writing for the newspaper that I did when I was working for the Orlando Sentinel um, as a freelancer. But that money was my grocery money. It was also helped me pay my utility bills uh, because even back back in the day. Uh, PG&E uh, had really high uh, electric rates. Um, and so that's something that I also had to had to be mindful of. And so um, and so I actually wrote a lot of I write there's some days I would write like three articles in a day uh, because that would be like money I could put towards my utilities, um, as well as even like going back to visit my family in Florida. Mm -hmm, of course. I wanted to ask you about your academic career because it sounds like you have a really interesting um, career path as as a student and now as a practitioner um, and professor. It seems like you studied um, more of a humanities um, degree in, in your undergraduate degree. You, you seem to have been more interested in journalism and literature at that time. Why did you shift from that field to the field of law and environmental law? So I had this idea of wanting to be a journalist all along. Um, at the same time, I think around the same time I was going towards journalism, I was also developing this interest in law. And it wasn't something that I ever reconciled. And I also felt with being a journalist, it constantly meant you had to be in, in the field. Um, and uh, and I felt that I wouldn't be as successful as a journalist as I would be as, as a lawyer. Um, I'm not sure that's necessarily true. That was just like the calculus in my head um, at, at the time. And one of the things that actually pushed me more towards the law was the work I did for the Daily Californian. I had covered um, the Microsoft Intel uh, cases, like antitrust litigation at the time. Um, and, and I really saw that the impact that the lawyers had, because I covered a lot of uh, different court cases as well as uh, UC Regent uh, board meetings, is that the lawyers had a little bit more impact in terms of what was happening. And so I don't, I don't, but I don't think I ever kind of left journalism because that was always, I'd say, my first uh, love from from a career uh, standpoint. But one of the turning points I had was actually I, I had graduated uh, from from college, and I actually graduated from college and. Uh, in about two years. So the same way I'm not trying to spend $100 on makeup, I also don't want to spend four years in, in, in college and trying to see like which major could I take that I could uh, get all the credits I needed to to graduate and, and transfer over my my high school uh, AP, AP credits as well. And so comparative literature happened to be that field because I also, by the time I'd even gotten to college, I'd been studying Latin for five years. And so I did a dual emphasis in English and Latin. Um, and, and that was really how I got my college uh, degree. So after I graduated, I went and studied Arabic and Islamic law in Damascus, Syria. This is 2000 and early 2001. And while I was there, I read, uh, read a story because um, I still, you know, even overseas, I would go check in on the Daily Cal and see what was being written. And I noticed that there is a case of my landlord, and which is where the one of the pictures in the photo shoot had been uh, taken. And he had been arrested in, um, in 2000. His name was uh, Lucky Reddy Bully Reddy. And he owned more than a thousand rental properties in, in Berkeley. Um, and is one of the, the richest landlords there. 
And he had actually uh, been convicted of sexually abusing nearly 25 women from India from the period of 1986 to 2001. And the the conviction uh, in the criminal case uh, around him uh, led to human trafficking and sex trafficking laws in the state uh, of California. And what was interesting is that the case was really brought to light because a group of journalists from student journalists from Berkeley High School had uh, had uncovered uh, the uh, of a, a death of carbon monoxide by a 17 year old uh, who was essentially been poisoned on on one of his his properties. And so this woman was trying to kind of speak out. Um, and uh, and so her, her death kind of galvanized people in ways that it hadn't uh, before in terms of thinking about abuse against an immigrant woman. And I saw the law as more of a vehicle uh, for change, um, whereas uh, journalism was journalism was just a way to kind of report uh, uh, about it. And I saw that there was more uh, potential for thinking about policy changes and uh, and changing laws. And so that's what ended up, you know, leading me to go to, to law school. And even at the time, um, there was a lot of anti-war activism that was happening in 2002, 2003. And I really thought like civil rights and, and immigrant rights was what I wanted to do. Um, but when I started going to law school at the University of Florida, I didn't feel like I had the support, uh, again, to kind of focus um, in those areas. And so um, I felt like as an immigrant woman working on immigrant rights issues, I would be in a double bind uh, where people aren't going to take the issues I want seriously and they aren't going to take me seriously. And so I ended up taking um, or gravitating more towards uh, um, corporate and business law as well as like international uh, rights and property rights. So I also saw, for example, like as a South Asian woman, um, the different uh, laws, and this was part of my law school th uh, thesis, was how uh, women's uh, rights and property, whether it was through inheritance, uh, divorce, or even dowry were impacted uh, differently in the South Asian context through religious norms and customs than they were um, in the U.S. And there was there there was uh, quite a bit of uh, that was happening in, in that space in India during the 80s and, and, and 90s. Um, and it really wasn't being written about um, in, in the West uh, as much. And so um, and so really kind of looking at this lens more, when I went into practice, I focused more on like land use, zoning, and small uh, business law, as well as like alternative dispute uh, resolution, as well as uh, mediation. And then at the same time, I really had this um, this itch to really look at energy and environmental law. So after I practiced law for about five years, I ended up pursuing a, a master's in environmental and natural resources law at the University uh, of Denver. My husband was also doing um, uh, going to graduate school as well at the time. And so I thought this was a good time for me as well to take a break uh, from practice. So even though I didn't enjoy law school um, as much when I had the chance to go back and get a second degree in law, I really in, in enjoyed that. And I think for me also, it's not just the idea of the law, the idea of learning um, and, and being able to, you know, to study, I think was really exciting. And so um, I, I worked in like for different energy companies. Like I also worked like helping to develop sustainable development agreements in Afghanistan. Um, and what's interesting is that I actually had done a um, a media interview on Afghan international uh, TV a few months ago. Uh, and the this was a group essentially that has in the studio is based out, out of out of London. And so they have been you know critical of the Taliban and, and the wreck that they they have, you know, the way, what what they have done to the country, um, essentially made it very difficult for for people at all levels. 
And um, and so I was speaking about, you know, mineral rights and development uh, that was happening. It could potentially happen and be a source of income for, for the country. And so on the YouTube comments of the after the interview, they were comments in there that I was wearing makeup while I was doing the TV, which made me kind of think back uh, as well. Like, you know, uh, like people always will criticize women uh, about their experience. And they're basically not even criticizing, they're just criticizing me that just by the mere fact that I was like wearing a lipstick or, and so I think that is like, you know, kind of taking away, like they're not even listening to what I'm saying. Um, and, and that's really where like this idea of kind of commodifying women and really objectifying them remains. It's like, they can't even, like they can't even listen to, to us. And, and and that's, I think that that's really unsettling. Yes. That's so powerful. And it, it, it links back totally to your uh, mixed feelings about appearing in this teen magazine when you were a teenage girl um, and, and a young woman. And I think even, you know, a story that's in the news right now of this, you know, supposed paparazzi chase in New York with Meghan Markle and Prince Harry, there's this discussion of, is Meghan Markle smiling in the pictures? And, and, and that if she is, that somehow that's completely invalidating their experience of, of being fearful. And when I saw the pictures of her in the back seat, to me, that didn't look like a smile. That looked like the kind of face that women put on when, when you're uncomfortable, but you're trying to smooth things over or keep yourself calm. And it's just like this, this space of everything being contested everything about your appearance being contested before anybody will actually think about the the nuance of what is actually being experienced what is being said what is being felt um i i'm sorry that you had that experience with those youtube comments but i guess in a way i'm not surprised because that seems to be the 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 framework that women um that that women exist in online yeah i think i think that that's an important point because um, it discourages women from even being like out there in the online uh, online space. A few years ago, I had co-written an article, uh, an editorial in the Washington Post with another Muslim woman law professor, um, and we had about fourteen hundred negative comments about us, you know, just talking about the myths of hijab. And this was a very benign article, and I was like, you know, I need to print out all these fourteen hundred negative comments about the hijab and, and submit them as a part of my tenure. Uh, file because I think like people don't recognize like the level of hate that people have against Muslims and especially Muslim women uh, that wear hijab they think that because you wear hijab you don't know what you're doing and just like this level of 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 not knowing and I think that that for me somebody who's like super high hyper educated is really was really problematic even this idea of like going to school and like going to teach is like very simple um, but it's so um, like as you use the word contested, but it, it it it's really also sad at the same time that um, it makes you feel as if you have to like build this armor or this barrier even to just kind of get through things that people take for for granted. Um, like it would be very hard for me, I think, to even uh, exist in, in certain places of the world. And even even today, I think that you know to be able to kind of speak my own mind. You know, people don't like what I have to say sometimes, but I think I have to also learn to feel comfortable with that, um, that I didn't, you know, I didn't go into journalism to, you know, to make friends. Like I went there because there's the idea of, you know, being able to speak your truth as well as to report the the truth.
It's actually an interesting coincidence that Nadia spoke with me about this phenomenon of being ripped apart in the comments, because not long before I interviewed Nadia, I and another podcast arranged a podcast trailer swap. They share my trailer, I share theirs. The other podcast is called Straight to the Comments. It's in its second season and explores the comedic value and deeper meaning of celebrity gossip and why we can't get enough. Have a listen. Every day, millions of comments are left online, often overshadowing the stories themselves. Straight to the Comments is a podcast that goes into the psychology of these reactions and what they tell us about the society we live in. I'm Sarah, a writer and psychology graduate. And I'm Lisa, a communications and social media consultant. And in each episode, we look at a trending story through the lens of online comments. From the Mail Online to Instagram and beyond, we dig deep into topics from Madonna ageing to the fat shaming of Lizzo to discover what they say about our collective mindset. So join us for judgment-free conversation with a bit of a British twist. This is Gossip Without the Guilt. Find us on your favourite podcast player. My thanks to Ariel Nissenblatt for matching me up with Straight to the Comments on Twitter. So in the first part of our call, Nadia shared her memories of being in Teen People magazine and why she shifted from journalism to law. In 2020, Nadia published a journal article called Climate Cages, connecting migration, the carceral state, Extinction Rebellion, and the coronavirus through Cicero and 21 Savage. It's a paper that highlights the intersectionality of race, climate change, migration, protest movements, and COVID-19. We spoke around the beginning of an unusually early Canadian wildfire season, which ultimately prompted air quality advisories affecting millions of people in Canada and the U.S. At one point last month, in June of 2023, my community had the worst air quality on the planet. My employer handed out N95s to keep us safe indoors, and one day I came home from work with my clothes smelling of smoke. Recent heat waves in the U.S. Southwest have led to premature deaths and worsened conditions for people living in congregate settings without adequate access to air conditioning, such as the incarcerated. That's just one of the issues Nadia writes about in this paper, and it's inspiring her PhD research. We're beyond climate adaptation. We're at the stage that we have to think about how we're going to resettle uh, and, and and really mitigate the, the, the problem. For example, in Pakistan, uh, last year, they had horrific monsoon floods. You had about a third of the country what was underwater. About 20 million people were, were displaced as a result of that. And so what I'm looking at is this idea of evacuating. Even in Florida, we had a really bad hurricane last, about two really bad hurricanes, Hurricane Irma, um, sorry, Hurricane Ian and Hurricane Nicole. And so I saw like students um, as well as even other like staff members at my university who lived in a um, in one uh, apartment complex, they had to be evacuated uh, by the firefighters. They're basically told five minutes, you need to take whatever you have and, and, and leave. And so I think we're going to see more of that happening. And it will really be the military that will be at the forefront of those humanitarian efforts. Even when I lived in Colorado, I saw that people had to be 
evacuated from mountaintops because the area, the roads had had flooded um, and helicopters had to come in and, and evacuate them. And so that's really where I think we're going to be heading in the next 20, 25 uh, years, like by 2050, like millions of people are going to be dying because of climate change um, and this extreme weather that we're seeing and even extreme heat and wildfires. And that's really kind of where I pushed more of my energy um, and research towards, because that's really, I think that thinking about, you know, are we facing mass extinction? Are, are we are we beyond that, that tipping point? Is like, what is going to be happening in 2030 um, with, with high levels of heat and who's going to be able to survive? Uh, because a lot of that is determined, especially in the U.S. by your zip code in terms of uh, where you're going to have access to medical services or even social services and educational opportunities and, you know, being able to even have access to um, to, to mortgages and loans and home ownership. And all of that is like part of this broader, uh, like big picture that, that, that is happening out there. Mm. And what's the connection with 21 Savage? He was actually put into immigration detention himself. And he talked about a lot of the issues that he had faced uh, in this um, in this uh, song a lot, but he didn't actually focus on the issue that mattered most to him, that he was uh, it, he, he didn't have citizenship status. Um, and so he was he was hauled off. And as a part of that, he said that time in detention for him was the scariest point that he had in his life. Because before, if he had gotten in trouble with the law, like he knew there was a process that you would go appear before the judge, you know, he would reach out to lawyers and they, they would work through it. But with the immigration detention, he didn't know if his whole career w would end, like what would happen uh, to him, because it really put everything he had worked on through his whole life in, in, in jeopardy. He had really, you know, built up a following. And so there is an idea that if it could happen to him, it could happen to, to anybody. And there was another layer on top of it that he that as a black immigrant, he faced another other levels of prejudices, like by both the state um, as well as by society. And so seeing, you know, the number of people who are being prosecuted and brought before, uh, you know, brought for, for deportation proceedings, there's a high there's a higher level of black immigrants um, that that are being brought forward, and and that that is that that is like really essential to see that because the problems that are happening as a result of the climate crisis, and he had in his song a lot, he had mentioned the Flint water crisis uh, as well, and how the environmental racism was happening, and it was right after uh, he, he had. Uh, inclu not included the that those verses of the song when he had actually put him on the track, but when he did did some live performances, he had put, added in those extra verses uh, relating to the Flint uh, water crisis. There was some speculation at the time that it was because of this his work on environmental racism that he was being targeted um, by by immigration be uh, because of that, and so. When I had presented parts of this paper at academic conferences, I didn't get a very good reception because if I looked at the different um, statistics relating to mass incarceration over the past 40, 50 years, and everybody else has you know, already done this research, is that the rates of incarceration uh, over time have um, increased even though crime has decreased. Um, and the sentencing, the, the, the sentencing has also increased. And so when you look at this increase in incarceration, you would think it's happening independently on its own um, in the U.S. and in other countries. But it's not because the U.S. through both the State Department as well as through the American Bar Association's Rule of Law Initiative has actually taken our U.S. system of justice and spread this idea all over the world. So it's not just happening independently. They're basically taking the U.S. system and then uh, then incorporating it elsewhere. So that's why you're going to see a spike in incarceration elsewhere. 
uh, as well. So we've exported our mass incarceration system at uh, at the same uh, time. And so what I'm arguing is that because of the climate crisis, we're actually not solving the climate crisis. We've just decided we're going to put people in prison or immigrant detention facilities or block them off from different borders. And so with the, which you'll see right now, um, like we're working toward essentially having an asylum ban um, in, in the U.S. And we're also seeing that there was a lot of outrage as well uh, surrounding Trump's uh, like deportation policies and the Muslim ban. But the asylum ban is actually way worse uh, because it basically takes away the whole uh, the system of being able to seek asylum, turning people away um, at, at the border. And then I done a follow up article um, uh, to that, looking at how the crisis at the border uh, is also relating to the, the spikes in, in mass incarceration. But this idea like, OK, we're starting to see connections between mass incarceration and climate is like a, a new idea all of a sudden where it's really not because there's this whole field of environmental justice that has been around since before I was even in diapers, maybe before I was thought of. So this idea of immigration, environmental justice has been along, around for a long time. And after Hurricane Katrina, there was people in prisons who were flooded um, as, as a result. They didn't have access to, to, to water, uh, electricity, or even food for, for a number of days. And so if you know, we can remember what happened at the Superdome, but just remember, imagine if you were in a prison at that time, and that wasn't evidence uh, as well. And so a lot of times, like in elite institutions and, and uh, white majority spaces, they're starting to talk about this uh, idea of mass incarceration and climate change as if it's like a brand new idea, but it's been around for like 40 plus years. And so I think just because like elite institutions start to see connections between climate and mass incarcer incarceration shows that it's now an idea, like it's now something we need to think about. Um, and the same thing with like the idea of like even prison abolition. Um, like there was a few years ago, a uh, whole um, issue that was done in the Harvard Law Review of, about it. But if you look through and you do some archival research, which you're probably way better than, than I am at it, is that you will see that this idea of, of abolition has been around, you know, even in the law school circles uh, for, for a long time, maybe not at institutions that are, that are as, uh, that, that are as uh, well known. And so I think that's important to kind of recognize where the ideas are, are coming from and then where they're also being co-opted. Mm -hmm. I can see how those ideas of dignity um, uh, would inform your work in the social justice space, in the abolition space. Yeah, I think that being able to see that there is a type of, um, of freedom that you have to be able to define the freedom on, on your own terms. And what means freedom for me may not mean freedom for, for other people. Uh, but I think this idea of being able to respect that and, and see that being able to uh, to move forward, I think is important. Um, what was also I thought was really um, strange is that I was writing this article or getting ready to like um, be interviewed by CNN about their um, year, like 20 year anniversary of 9-11. And so this was during when my kids had been during the pandemic. I had, um, I had three kids um, and they are now 12, nine, and, and five. And so they were a little bit younger when the pandemic had started. For example, my middle child graduated kindergarten during the pandemic, whereas my last one just graduated kindergarten yesterday. And so 
they actually, the older two didn't even know about 9-11. Like one of them had some idea about it. And then the other one didn't know anything about it because she was, you know, online and there wasn't really a big thing to be talking about is basically focus on survival. And also kind of one time when I was speaking to my own students, this was actually right before the pandemic started, I was speaking about uh, kind of traveling and kind of some of the experiences that that I faced. And I felt my students didn't see like racism the same way I saw it, like as a Muslim woman. And some of that is because there's more Muslims like in the entertainment space. Uh, like if you think about um, about the... Was the new was it called new it was new directions and Zane a lot of like teenage girls that had a crush on on Zane um and so I think for them like they they didn't see like being Muslim as a problem um and so I felt that with like this like the Gen Z generation they they had less issues with with Muslimness than than I think that my generation did or even like the, the boomer generation does uh with Muslims and Islam so I think that's a positive. Uh, development and that my kids don't even know about 9-11. I spent so much time thinking and uh, being in the, in, the, in the shadow of it was like, oh, well, they don't even have to think about it in, in that way. So maybe I should, you know, kind of recognize, you know, the impact that it had, uh, but also seeing that there was a ricochet effect um, uh, to it. And I don't have to also kind of take and assume responsibility for something I didn't, I didn't do. Mm -hmm. You mentioned your grandmother early on and um, how she inspired you to um, to honor her memory and her legacy by wearing a hijab. What lessons do you take away from your grandmother and um, the, the influence that she had on your life? So my grandmother, uh, we had helped her do her, um, my grandmother had actually been separated from my grandfather for uh, from from about 1983 to 1991, um, not because they're having any marital problems, but because of immigration reasons, uh, because my grandmother had gotten her visa to come here. But then my aunts um, who are not married did not. And so my grandfather decided he would stay back behind uh, with them. And so it meant about an extra uh, because my my two uh, aunt and uncle who are a little bit younger uh, were able to get the visa and so they came over but then my aunt, my uncle my uncle, my grandfather stayed behind to uh you know to, to make sure that till the other two um uh, daughters got their visas also and so this was like a long period of family separation and so when I think about this idea and this demonization about they think call it like chain migration like it's not just some abstract concept like that's my family like how like we all came um like you know and we're unified in, in some way over time and so I think being able to see like there's this idea of family values but also thinking about you know how we can't be so elitist in what we think about as families and trying to kind of put up barriers and walls and really thinking about and um, and making this idea of citizenship very elitist uh, because where people are going to be like located in which country is going to impact how they're going to be able to respond to, to the climate crisis. And the U.S. could actually hold a lot more people than it currently has um, without having like the physical strain on the ecosystem. The only problem is it doesn't have enough water to sustain all of the people in the world. But I think that we have to really look and see, you know, what has been the impact of colonization, what has been the impact of slavery, and really kind of account for that. So my last question for you is, 
looking back on your teenage self, working for the Orlando Sentinel, working for teen people, going to college for the first time, what advice would you give your teenage self today? So I think my teenage self was probably more defiant and more more willing to break barriers than my now self. Um, and I think my advice to my current self would be to be more like my teen self. Like even like when I started the, like the PhD this past year, I felt like like I really had to kind of hit pause on my life um, from after 9-11 to when I started the PhD. Like I felt it took me about 20 years to kind of overcome living in the shadow of 9-11 um, to now. Is that like maybe I can just go back to being myself before 9-11. And I think that is something that it's just like a good recognition and realization to have that we have more common ground that connects us and and being able to find that common ground is, is really how we have to think about spending our life versus thinking about this idea of divisions and and, and putting up uh, walls and thinking about this is how we need to uh, uh, you know police women's bodies. Mm. This has been such a fascinating conversation and such a wonderful discussion. Was there anything that I missed that you wanted to to speak to here? Oh no, thank you. I I think this was a really fascinating way to to um, you know to engage. And thank you so, so much for being able to remind me of the the work that I had done uh, with teen people. Like I'd you know kind of hidden away the, the article, hope that it would never appear. So so thank you for kind of reminding reminding me and, and making me appreciate it. Thanks for joining me and Nadia for another episode of Teen People. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a rating or review. And why not listen to my previous episodes featuring two other news team members mentioned in this one, Amar Shah and Alicia Fernandez-Miranda. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at teenpeoplepod. And if you were in Teen People magazine and you want to talk with me about that experience, please get in touch. I'm always looking for new guests. Until next time. I'm Anna Soper. Stay well. Are we still saying that? I am. See ya.